Well, it seems like a year since I've seen you. So happy new year to all of you. I want to welcome you here to, we have two campuses. We've got one here at Sugarloaf. We've got one at Mill Creek and say hi and happy new year to all of our Mill Creek folks out there. One church in two locations. Welcome to those of you who are watching online. And uh, we want to invite you to visit whichever campus is closest to you. We've got one here and of course one about 20 minutes to the north. And we're really excited about you being here. I'm pumped about the day. I'm glad that you're here. And let me just tell you something I know just by looking out at you this morning. Every one of you in this room made the same decision when you woke up this morning. And here's how I know what that you did. I know exactly the decision you made. You decided to come to church. And I'm glad that you did. I'm, give yourself a hand. Just clap for yourself, okay? I really, I'm, I'm glad you decided to come to church for whatever the reason. I don't know what it was. You had to come. You were made to come. You were forced to come. Somebody talked you into coming. It doesn't matter. You got up. And you decided to show up either in this place or at our Mill Creek campus. Now, what you may not have realized is that what you decided to do was actually continue an ancient practice that started over 2,000 years ago. And I want to take you back to that early church, the very first church. You may not know it. It started out with 120 people. They met in the city of Jerusalem that at that time was under the rule of the Roman Empire in the very first century. And at the end of the first century, they went from 120 people to about 10,000 Christians. Now, at that time, at the end of the first century, they only made up about 0.00017% of the 60 million people that lived in the Roman Empire. By the year 200, 100 years later, there were 200,000 believers in the Roman Empire. They made up about 0.36% of the population. By the year 250, almost 2% of the population, more than a million people, were followers of Jesus. Two generations, just two generations later, by the year 300, Christians made up approximately 10% of the population, numbering over 6 million people. By the 4th century, there were 35 million Christians in the ancient world. And if you go back and do the math, to, in order to go from 120 to 35 million, Christianity had to grow every 10 years at a 40% clip. So you do the math. Every 10 years, Christianity was growing by 40%. Now, here's the question that I want to ask you. My question is not how did the early church survive? That's one question. The bigger question is, how did the early church thrive? How did it go from 120 people in just three centuries to 35 million people? Because if, if, if Las Vegas had been in existence and you had been taking odds on the church making it, they would have taken any odds and taken any bet. There's no way this church is ever going to get off the ground. Now, you think about it. Take, let's just take the founder of Christianity. His name was Jesus. He was a peasant. He was a carpenter. He was from a no-name town in a country that was under the domination uh, of the dominance uh, of the Roman Empire. In the beginning, Christianity was considered depraved. It was considered to be crazy. It was one of those out-there religions. As a matter of fact, it was even illegal in a lot of places. 
The persecution of Christians was relentless. Two persecutions were empire-wide, and the Roman Empire itself had determined, we're going to destroy this church. We're going to destroy Christianity. This is too dangerous. We cannot tolerate any other king except Caesar. Those earliest Christians, they didn't have buildings like we had. They didn't have any financial resources. They met at homes. They, they had no access to the mass media of their day. They had no political influence. They didn't even have a Twitter account. Can you imagine that? I mean, they had nothing except for the Apostle Paul. They didn't have any big-name personalities. They didn't have any big-name missionaries. They didn't have anything really going for them whatsoever. So you say, well, how did, how did the faith spread? How did they grow? Through people like you and people like me, just run-of-the-mill, ordinary Dime a dozen people who decided this Jesus really was who he said he was. He really did what he said he did, and we're going to become followers of him. Because you have to keep in mind, early Christianity was kind of an urban faith. It was kind of centered in the big cities. People lived very close together. And the way that the early church had influence was by the way that people outside the church looked at how people inside the church lived their life on a daily basis. So the amazing thing is, is when you go back and you look at how the early church grew and how the early church exploded, it's not because people were forced into going to church or coerced into going to church or even talked into going to church. They weren't pressured into going to church because there wasn't any pressure to give. They weren't paid to go to church, even if you could pay people, because the church had no money to pay people to come. People were just drawn to the church. Like, like iron is drawn to a magnet. And so the question I want us to ask beginning this new year is, what made the early church so magnetic? What was it about the early church that people on the outside, on their own, voluntarily said, we want to check this out. We want to be a part of this. We want to know what it is that makes you so different. So we're starting a series today that we're calling Magnetic. Because I, I want to be honest with you, and, 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 and if you don't want this for us, and I mean this in a loving way, you probably need to be somewhere else. I want us to be a magnetic church. I, 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 want, to be, I want us to be a magnetic people. I, I want to have people in our church that are so magnetic. I want to have a church filled with those kind of people. I want to have people that not only want to come to this church, they want others to come to this church, and people want to come to this church because of the people that do come to this church. That's what I want. So today we're going to begin with what I believe is the first foundational quality that makes a church magnetic. Now before I tell you what it is, let me just begin by telling you, this is not my idea. It's not something I sat down in my study one day and said, okay, what makes a church magnetic and just decided to see what would stick on the wall? This is really what Jesus had to say. And I want to tell you why today's message is maybe the most important message of the four. Because there's one thing we know is true about the church, and if you don't think it's true, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. We're losing influence in our culture. The church is not as influential as it was when I was growing up. The pastor is no longer listened to the way pastors were listened to when I was growing up. The influence of the church is waning. The church is kind of falling out of favor. 
Now, what we tend to do, and I hear a lot of this, is people want to blame the culture. Well, it's the culture's fault. It's, you know, and, and people are becoming so secular, and they've gotten so busy, and they are so materialistic, and they don't have time for the church, and they're more resistant to the claims of Christianity. Well, all of that is true, but I think that's only part of the story. In fact, I, I just want to be honest. I don't think the major reason why people are not drawn to the church is because of the culture. I think the major reason why people are not drawn to the church is because of the church. I think too many churches have become monuments and museums rather than magnets. We've got too many churches who wonder, why is it that we don't draw people into the church in the 21st century even though we try to do church the way we did it 70 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago? And that's a problem, I believe, with a lot, with a, with a lot of churches. And, and I think one of the biggest reasons is because we have forgotten something that Jesus said to his disciples in the last night, really before he was crucified. And I think it's the foundational principle we've got to get back to if we're going to be a magnetic church. And I want to show you what Jesus said. If you're on a copy of God's Word or you look on your phone or iPad, whatever, I want you to turn to the fourth gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want you to turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, what you're going to find in just a moment is that Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us what is the first quality of a church and what the first quality is of an individual believer that will make that church and the, will make that person magnetic. I'll be honest with you. I want people drawn not to me. I want people drawn to the Jesus that lives in me. I don't want people drawn just to this church, just to a building. I want people drawn to the Jesus that ought to be in this building. And so what we're going to look at is what I'm going to call crazy love. And I call it crazy for this reason. Everybody loves something or somebody. You can't find anybody in this world that doesn't love either another person or they don't love something. It may be money. It may be sex. It may be fame. It may be pleasure. Everybody loves something, whether it's their kids or their mom or a friend. As a matter of fact, everybody loves love. We are so in love with the idea of love. We've even got a, got a holiday dedicated to it called Valentine's Day, where we just celebrate love. Well, the kind of love that Jesus talked about is a crazy kind of love. It's a different kind of love. It's a new kind of love. As a matter of fact, it is so powerful. The love that Jesus says that we ought to have is so powerful that he gives us this principle. Here's what he's going to teach us. Divine affection is the most effective attraction. Divine affection is the most effective attraction. I want to talk about a crazy kind of love today that Jesus wants us to have in our church. And it's not the kind of love that you can manufacture. It's not the kind of love you can kind of make up on your own. It's not the kind of love that you can kind of weave out of your own web. It is something that Jesus tells his disciples, you've got to take specific steps if you're going to experience that kind of love and express that kind of love. So I want to begin by telling you right up front, I want us to be a magnetic church. And I want those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus to be magnetic people because you know what a magnetic church is? It's just a church filled with magnetic people. 
Now, if you really do, really, really do have a desire to follow Jesus in 2016, then you ought to really be tuned into what I'm going to say to you this morning. And you really ought to have a heart that would say, hey, I want whatever it is that will make me the magnet that I want to be, that God wants me to be, that I can draw other people to him. All right? There are three steps you have to take. Jesus tells us in this passage. Number one, first thing you've got to do, you've got to surrender your life. You've got to surrender your life if you want to be a magnetic person. Let me take you back to John 13. Tell you what's going on. This is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. They've just had what we call the Last Supper. Judas has just walked out the door to betray his master of three years. So Jesus is about, you might say he's about to give his last will and testament. These are kind of the last words he's going to say. And so he, he's, he's, he's been giving a lot of commandments to disciples for these three years, but he saved his very best for last. Here's what he begins by saying. He says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, now there are several things I want you to notice here. First of all, he says, I want to give you a New commandment. Well, that raises a question. Well, so why is it new? I mean, the Old Testament talks about love. The Old Testament talks about loving your neighbor. So what is it that is so new about this commandment? I mean, why is it so new? Well, for one thing, the very word love that Jesus has used, that Jesus uses is a very, very new and unusual word. Because back in that day, back in the Greek and Roman culture that day, people knew something about love. Love was a very common concept. As a matter of fact, they had different words to express different kinds of love. They talked about the, the, the one, one word they used for love was the word eros. We get the word erotic from that. And that referred to the kind of sexual, passionate kind of desire that particularly married people have for one another. So they had that kind of love. And then they, they had another word they called storge. Storge was kind of, a, kind of the, a family love, the affection of a family. And that referred to the love that a parent had for a child or a child had for a parent or a brother had for a sister. And then they had a, a, another word for love they called philia, or philia. It, it, it refers to brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. <clears throat> and it referred to the love that, that close friends or maybe brothers would have for each other. Then Jesus comes along and he says, let me tell you about another kind of love. I don't want to talk about eros. I don't want to talk about storge. I don't want to talk about philia or philia. I, I, I want to talk about agape. Agape. Yeah, that's kind of a brand new kind of love. That word agape is used no less than 250 times in the New Testament. And the thing about this kind of love is it's not a natural kind of love. It's a supernatural kind of love. It's not an instinctive kind of love. It's a spiritual kind of love. And it goes beyond anything that the human heart can manufacture on its own. Because you're going to see momentarily, it is the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated in his own life. Because he goes on to say this, as I have loved you. Now, this is what makes this love so crazy. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus said, I don't want you just to love people the way you think you ought to love people. I want you to love people the way I've loved you. When you go back and you read how Jesus loved people, the world had never seen love like Jesus showed. The world had never known the kind of love that Jesus had showed and that Jesus gave. And what's even more unusual than that is this. What's really unusual is that Jesus said, look, this is not a new suggestion. 
This is not a new opinion or a new option. This is a new commandment. Jesus said, look, I'm not asking that you love one another. I'm not requesting that you love one another. I'm not suggesting that you love one another. I'm not even begging you to love one another. I am commanding you. This is a new commandment. I am commanding you that you love one another. He said, look, the kind of love I'm talking about is not optional. It's obligatory. It's the kind of love that doesn't come as a feeling. It comes from obeying. And what Jesus does is he basically takes a word that is normally used as a noun, love, and he turns it into a verb. He commands us to love. And so here's what Jesus is telling us. Love's not just a feeling. It's also a choice. It's not just something that you feel. See, this is where we get so confused. Love is not just a noun that you feel. It is a verb that you do. So here's what I want you to understand. Love is not a matter of can or can't. I've heard people say, I, I just can't love that person. Oh, yeah, you, yeah, sure you. It's not a matter of can or can't. The question I want to ask you is not, can you love that person? The question I want to ask you is, will you love that person? Will you love that ex-spouse? Will you love that mother-in-law? Will you love that black sheep brother in the family. Not can you. I'm not asking can you. Will you? It's not a matter of can or can't. It is a matter of will or won't because love is not just an emotion. You say, well, how do you know that? Because you cannot command a feeling. Now, love may express itself emotionally. It may give you a warm feeling in your tummy. It may make you tear up. It may make your heart beat faster, but that's, that, those are not signs of love. Let me give you, here's a good illustration. Liking someone is a feeling. Loving someone is an action. There's a big difference between liking people and loving people. You know, the, the, you know this one thing I'm so grateful for. Jesus never commands us to like our enemies. You ever thought about that? He says, love your enemies. But he doesn't command us to like our enemies. Now, let me ask you a question. Why didn't Jesus command us to like our enemies? It's real easy. You can't command somebody to like something. Okay, how many of you like, how many of you don't like collards or turnip greens? Just raise your hand. All right, I command you to like turnip greens. What's well, crazy? I don't like collards and turnip greens. I think people that like it need help. I don't like them either. And you can command me all you want to. I'm not going to like eating that kind of food. You can't command somebody to like somebody. Why? Liking somebody is purely an emotional response. It is a feeling. Liking someone has nothing to do with loving someone. So here, here's, here's, the, here's the good news. I don't have to like everybody. I don't. But I have to love everybody. I don't have to like you to love you. Matter of fact, let me let you a little secret, okay? Don't tell anybody what I'm about to tell you. This is just between us. I don't like everybody that I love. So you're saying, you mean there may be someone in this room that you love but you don't like? Oh, there probably is. You won't know that, but I know that. No, and all seriously, I don't really know of anybody like that, but I, I do know of people you know, that, that I don't like that I do love. As a matter of fact, let me tell you something. The truth of it, I hate to break this to some of you. 
Not everybody that loves you is going to like you. Well, unless you're me. Not everybody that loves you is going to like you. And Jesus in the next chapter will go on to say this. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. He makes it clear. If you're going to love me the way you ought to love me, you've got to surrender your life to me. You've got to obey what I'm telling you to do. And one of the marks that you love Jesus is you obey his commandments. And he said, one of my commandments is that you love one another. So if we're going to love as Jesus loved and as Jesus wants us to love, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to come to him and say, Lord, I get it. Love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. Love is an obedience. Love is an act of the will. And beginning today, the hardest person I find to love, I'm going to love them anyway. It's not a matter of can I do it. It's not a matter of of, uh, can't I do it. It is a matter of will or won't I. And Lord, today, I'm surrendering my life to you. And beginning today, you think about the person in your life that you know that's the hardest person in the world for you to love. Today, you need to say, Lord, I am surrendering my life to you. And today, beginning today, I love and I'm going to love that person. For some of you, it'll be a radical change in your life. For some of you, the bitterness and anger you've been carrying with you is going to drain out of you right now. I mean, just like that, it's going to come right out of you. But you've got to make that commitment. I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to love one another. That's the first thing, you surrender your life. Step two, once you surrender your life, then you show your love. Now, Jesus not only tells us that we are to love each other, he tells us how we are to love each other. Listen to what he says again. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, why did he say that? Three years, these disciples had been walking with him and living with him and watching him. And you know what they saw? He didn't just say he loved people. He showed he loved people. He didn't just do it with his lips. He did it with his life. And he says, I want you to emulate my example. How I have loved you is how you are to love others. And how he loves me is how I am to love you. And how he loves you is how you are to love me. Now, the best way to summarize it is real simple. Jesus loved people sacrificially. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you go back and notice how he interacted with the people, Nobody in history has ever loved like Jesus loves. Contrary to popular opinion, the greatest lover who ever lived was not Casanova. The greatest lover who ever lived was Jesus. Nobody ever loved men. Nobody ever loved women. Nobody, nobody ever loved boys. Nobody ever, ever loved girls. Nobody, nobody, nobody ever loved friends and nobody ever loved enemies like Jesus loved. Nobody has ever loved people the way that Jesus loved people. Just think about how he loved those disciples. He did not love them for what he could get out of them. He loved them for what he could give to them. He didn't just choose them for what they could do for him. He chose them for what he could do for them. For three years, he always put them first. Now, you may sit there and you may say, wait a minute, time out. I can't do that. I'm not Jesus. I just don't have that capability. Oh, yes, you do. Because another way you could translate that verse would be this way. You're to give the love to others that I have given to you. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what I know about you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have two things in you right now. I know this. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you not only have Jesus in you, you've got the love of Jesus in you. 
You can't have Jesus without his love. You, can't, you, you don't split the baby. So if you're telling me right now, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, you just told me, all right, number one, you've got Jesus in you, and you've got the love of Jesus in you. And the kind of love that Jesus has was not so much in words, it was in deeds. Jesus never just said to people, I love you. He showed people, I love you. How did he do it? He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He ministered to the hurting. He died on a cross. Jesus spent all of his life saying, look, I want to show you. Now, I'm not just going to tell you. I want to show you how much I love you. By the way, that's one of the benefits of being in a church. It's one thing to love people individually. But when you join with other people corporately, your opportunities of showing love multiply. For example, just open your eyes and think about how we tried to show love as a church just over the past several weeks. Many of you participated in the 12 ways of Christmas. And we showed how a church can come together and through our sacrifice and our giving and our going and our ministering and our helping and our proactivity, we can show the world what love is all about. And we can love each other in a way that will get the world's attention. We've got people in this church who need a job. They're out of work. We can love them by praying for them. We can love them by taking them to lunch. We can love them by taking a meal to them. We can love them by saying, hey, give me your resume. Let me see if I can help you find a job. We can even love others who don't even go to the church and won't come to the church by getting involved in our care point ministry. I mean, even the wealthiest people in our church could never make an impact individually like our church does together. We provide food. We provide clothes. We can equip people. We can even help people with English as a second language. I mean, there's so many ways that we can show people how we love. What about our, our benevolence? Many of you don't know this. One of the greatest ministries we have in our church is our benevolent fund. And, that, and that, that fund is much bigger than any single person's donation. So by joining together, you know what we do? And many of you don't even know it. We pay mortgages. We pay rent. We buy groceries. We meet needs. Why do you do that? Why do we do that? I mean, we're not the only organization that can do benevolent needs. Why do we do that? Because Jesus said, you must love one another. And you know what that means? Let me just, let me just kind of get this out. If we're going to love each other the way Jesus said we ought to love each other, that means it doesn't matter who walks in our door. It doesn't matter what their color is, what their political persuasion is, what their socio socioeconomic level is. It doesn't matter whether they live the kind of lifestyle we think they ought to live or not. Those things are irrelevant. Jesus said, you are to love one another. We're to love them as Jesus loved them. And so here's what I want you to hear. If you want to know what real love looks at, looks like. Don't look at the culture. Look at Christ. If you want to know what real love is, don't look at Hollywood. Look at heaven. We have a mandate from heaven to love one another, and we've got the model on how to love one another, and his name is Jesus, and we are to show our love. Now, here's the key. You say, well, what will that look like? What does that really look like if we really love one another and if we really show our love to one another, what will that look like? All right, Jesus tells us. He says, here's what will happen when a church does that. When you surrender your life, you say, okay, Lord, you've commanded me to love one another. I'm going to do it. Not a matter of can or can't, going to be a will or won't. I am going to love everybody. 
And I'm going to show it. I'm not just going to say it. It's not just going to be words. Every chance I get the opportunity to show somebody that I love them, I'm going to take that opportunity. Jesus said, okay, this is what will happen whether you realize it or not. We will share the Lord. We will share the Lord. Now watch this. This is one of the most amazing things I think Jesus ever said. He says this in verse 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, let me just stop right there. Let that sink in. Do you understand? Do you, I mean, do you really get how different that is from the way that so many churches think? I mean, here's my question. How are your neighbors going to really know that Jesus makes a difference? How, how are the people that you work with really going to know that Jesus makes a difference? How are the people that are outside this building really going to know from the people inside this building that Jesus really makes a difference? How, how is the unbeliever going to know that this thing called Christianity really is a game changer? Here's what Jesus said. He said, it's not going to be by how much we say that we love God or how much we talk about how much we love Jesus because it's just talk. Jesus said, the way that we are going to really draw people to himself and draw people into our church, the way people are going to sit up and pay attention and say, you know what? Maybe there is something to this Christian business. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus really does make a difference. Maybe I ought to think about becoming a follower of Jesus. He said the way that's going to happen is when people look at us and say, man, they really love one another. The world is not going to know that we're followers of Jesus because we include the word Christian in our Twitter profile. They're, they're not going to know that we're followers of Jesus because we post Bible verses on our Facebook profile. They're not going to know we're followers of Jesus because we put the hashtag God is good on a picture of a sunset on Instagram. Jesus said they're going to know it and they're going to believe it when they see a love between us and they see a love for us and they see a love going on around us that is different from what they're going to get outside. See, how do you know, by the way, how do you know just from looking at someone on the outside they're followers of Jesus? How do you know that? Can I tell you how I was raised to believe and how many of you were raised to believe? I was raised to believe, here's the way people will know that you're a Christian. Here's the way people will know that you're a follower of Jesus. Don't drink. Don't dance. Don't smoke. Don't play cards. Don't go to R-rated movies. Don't dip. Don't chew. Don't go where girls who do. I mean, that, you know, that, that's the way that people are going to know, people are going to know if you don't, if you don't do X and you don't do Y and you don't do Z, people are going to know, oh, you must be a Christian. That is absolutely 180 degrees opposite from what Jesus taught. Jesus never said anything like that whatsoever. Now I'm going to say something that some of you are not going to like perhaps, and you may not believe, but if what Jesus said is true, listen to this. The world will be a lot more persuaded about Christianity by what we do in love for each other than what we choose not to do by ourselves. The world will be a lot more persuaded about Christianity by what we do in love for each other than what we choose to do, not to do, by our 
ourselves. For example, love can be adopting one of the 14.3 million orphans in the world that has no one to love them. Love could just take what we spend on ice cream every year and give it to save the million people who will die every year from malaria. Our love may take some of the money that we spend on ourselves every year and start giving it so people can, so three billion people in the world that don't even have fresh water to drink can drink fresh water. Love can be visiting the sick, it can be feeding the hungry, it can be clothing the poor. You see, evangelism really does have two parts. There's the show part, there's the tell part. And actions do all, should speak as loud as words. You know, one of the ways you can tell somebody's a police officer is by the badge that they wear. Jesus said, one of the ways people ought to know that you're a follower of mine is there'll be this badge that you wear called love. And let me tell you what that badge will do. It will tell you two things. You know what love will tell you? Number one, love will tell you that you're a follower of Jesus. The apostle John wrote these words later on. He said this, we know that we pass from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. I called a buddy of mine today on, on the way to church. We talk about it every Sunday and, and, and we usually pray together. And I was talking to, to a buddy of mine today, and I, I said to him, in fact, he's the chaplain of the Georgia football team. I, and I called him, and I said, chap, he said, what are you preaching? And I said, chap, let me tell you how I know that I'm a follower of Jesus. He said, how do you know that? I said, because I love you. And he started laughing. I said, man, you're a hard guy to love sometimes. I love you. And I said, you know what? I love my church. I love the people that come to our church. I really love people that I meet and know who are followers of Jesus Christ. I love them just like family. I said, that's one thing that lets me know I truly am a part of God's family. It tells me that I'm a follower of Jesus, but Jesus also said, it will tell others that you are a follower of Jesus. So you really want to know how the early church exploded 2,000 years ago? How did a church, think about this, how did a church filled with poor people, for the most part illiterate people, non-influential people, how did 120 no-name people turn a world upside down? And how did they become a magnet that drew millions of people into its fold? How did they do that? Well, don't take my word for this. Let's go back about 1950 years. There was a man by the name of Aristides. And um, he was called by the emperor Hadrian to the, to the palace and he said, I understand that you know these Christians. You know these people who are in these churches. He said, yes, I do. He said, well, this thing's exploding, and we're trying to get our hands around it. He says, I want you to go and spy it out, and I want you to tell me what you find. So Aristides, undercover, began to go to certain house churches there around the area, and he just began to observe these Christians that would meet, and they'd worship, and they'd pray, and they would, they would, they would you know, preach the word. And so he came back to the emperor after a while, and the emperor sat him down, and he said, I, I, I want to hear what's, what's making the church explode. And Aristides said something that you may not have heard of, but if you're a Christian, like if you're a pastor or you've gone to seminary, it's one of the most famous things you've ever heard in your life. The first words out of his mouth to that emperor were these words, behold, how they love one another. Aristides said, I don't get it. I don't understand it. 
But I'll tell you the first thing that just knocks your socks off when you walk into this, these churches. They love one another. Listen, the number one mark of a Christian in the first century, the number one mark was not theological knowledge. It was not religious clothing. It was not church membership. It wasn't even church attendance. The one thing that let people know you were a follower of Jesus 2,000 years ago was love. When people walked into that early church, when people walked into those houses that functioned at churches, it didn't matter whether they were slave or free. It didn't matter if they were Jew or Gentile. It didn't matter if they were male or female. It didn't matter if they were rich or poor. It didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter why they came. When they walked into that early church, two things happened to them. They saw a group of people that loved each other like they had never seen love before. And they felt love from people that they had never felt before. So here's what I want to happen in our church. And I want to see it really so obvious in our church. I would rather have somebody come into our church, walk out of our church. I'd rather hear them say not, boy, what a great preacher that guy is. Or what great worship they had. What a beautiful building this is. What a fantastic children's program they have. What a great job they're doing with students. Or even how friendly the church is. I want people to walk out of our church and say, man, how they love one another. And how they have loved me. And this is where it really gets where the rubber hits the road. It means that you love the people that may not dress the way you think people ought to dress when they come to church. It means that you may love people that don't have the same sexual orientation you think everybody else to have. It means that you may have to love people that don't have the same political persuasion that you have. And so let me just kind of get this out, and we're going to wrap this up. This is not even my notes. I'm just kind of going to chase a rabbit here just for a minute. We're coming up on a presidential election. And I have a policy I've adopted a long time ago, and I'm going to encourage you to adopt this policy because it is poisoning our country. It's poisoning us. Never make the political personal. We got people in here who voted for Obama, and we got people in here who didn't. And we got people in here who like Obama, and we got people in here who don't. We got people that coming up in the next election, so we're going to have bumper stickers on one side of cars coming in here and bumper stickers on the other side of cars that come in here. But if you really get it and you understand it, then you'll get this. In the end, the solution to our problems is not going to be in the Oval Office. It's going to be on the throne of heaven. He's the only one that can solve our problems. Nobody else can solve them. And then, who, you know, and I have, I've said this, but people can't believe, no matter, you know, we, 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 every, every year we elect a president, what do we do? You know this, you've been around here. We get on our knees and pray for the president. So next year, whoever's elected, Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter to me. We're going to pray. And I know all of us would say about certain candidates, boy, if that person gets elected, we better pray. Okay, I get that. All right, I understand. Here's my point. Whether it's politics, culture, 
social media, whatever it is. Nothing should keep us from loving one another. And nothing should keep us from loving people that come into this building, no matter where they're coming from. Because here's what Jesus said. That is the only way people are going to know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. And I'm telling you, the older I get, the more this is important to me. I don't want how I vote to matter to anybody. I don't want how I dress to matter to anybody. I don't want to matter. I don't even want, want to know how I talk. What I want people to know is this guy loves me. This guy cares about me. We don't have to agree on everything. We won't have to see eye to eye on everything, and we're not going to until we get to heaven. But there's one thing I'm going to do. I'm going to love you. And there's one thing I'm praying you'll do. You'll love me. And there's one thing we've got to do. We've got to love one another. And if we love Jesus the way Jesus loves us, we can't help but love one another. Let's pray together.